Hi guys, welcome to the Rise Stronger podcast. It is me, Steve Hall, and I am joined by Chris Berakat. I'm very excited to have Chris on. I think it's been a long time coming. I think I actually met you, Chris, uh, like two years ago or something at uh, Body Power. And uh, I remember talking to you and saying how we need to get you on the podcast at some point. And ever since then, both of us have been busy and it's been amazing to actually watch your growth and you've already been on some highly reputable podcasts. So I'm honored to have you on the show uh, finally. And for those of you who don't know Chris, and I'm sure most of our audience will be quite aware of you, Chris, but he's a published researcher, an educator, and you're going to find out how good he is at that today, a coach and a natural bodybuilder. So he is kind of, yeah, the ideal guest for the podcast, in fact, because that's the sort of area that we love. Um, anything else you want to add there, Chris? How are you doing? Thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate you having me on. And yeah, we briefly met at the Body Power. And man, what is it like a year and a half later and we're here, but um, really looking forward to, you know, chatting with you again and reaching your audience as well. Awesome. So yeah, yeah. something I think uh, would be really interesting because obviously you're a coach, you coach a lot of bodybuilders to stage and in off season and a researcher. So you keep your kind of thumb on the research as well. And uh, something you have a kind of recent series over on Instagram talking about training like a bodybuilder. And it was kind of touching on kind of exercise specificity and how sometimes as bodybuilders, we don't always pick the smartest movements and we maybe could be smarter with our exercise selection. So I'd love to hear kind of where that was going down and what route you're going down with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, throughout my, you know, 10, 10 years or so of training, I made plenty of mistakes in the trenches. And, um, you know, a lot of times I was focusing on exercises that simply weren't giving me the best bang for my buck, um, just because they were such a popular trend in the community as a whole. So you typically start experimenting with what other people are doing. And I've learned a lot over the years um, through my personal experience in the gym and then obviously through getting more well-versed with the literature and actually conducting some research on my own. So um, there's a lot of ways that we can approach it. But I guess uh, one thing I would like to say is that a lot of people look at total volume as basically how much work they're, they're producing or how much work they're actually doing. And I think it's really important to understand that there's a difference between uh, the internal stimulus and the external uh, way that we're objectively measuring how much work we're doing. So um, with that being said, like we did a study, uh, this was during my master's, um, where we looked at varying the shoulder angle while performing different bicep curls. And this was a within, within subject design. So one week they came in and they did nine sets of curls with their shoulder at zero. And then the following week they came in and they did three sets with their shoulder extended, three sets neutral, and then three sets with their shoulder flexed. And we didn't control their volume, but it ended up being the same, just you know, out of pure chance. They were working at the same intensity. But what we found was the group that varied that shoulder angle actually produced a significantly greater muscle stimulus, muscle activation. So neurologically, something else is going on. So even though they produce the same amount of you know, weight times reps times sets, they got a better bang for their buck when they actually varied the exercise stimulus in that way. And you know, there was a study years back by Fonseca, I think it was 2014, where they showed the group that varied exercises um, actually produced 
I would say better hypertrophy across all four heads of the quadricep where the other group that was just doing less exercises and produced the same amount of total volume, they grew more in other heads. Their total growth was the same, but it wasn't the same from a regional standpoint when you're looking at all four heads of the quads. And for a bodybuilder, I think that's freaking huge, right? Like we're looking for symmetry. We want growth in every single area within the muscle belly. And if we're not programming our exercises in a smart way, I think oftentimes we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So we can kind of dive down that hole as well. No, absolutely. I guess that's putting a rear foot forward for variation. And I guess the worst, I'm thinking of the worst case scenarios. I don't know, for example, say you're not built to squat and you think you have to squat to get big legs and all you do is squat and you're not made for squatting. And then you could move to, I don't know, a hack squat and a leg extension and double your growth, for example, just as a random example. Like that's the kind of thing you're talking about there. And like you said, for bodybuilders, that's huge. So maybe start down in terms of exercise selection. What key things are you looking at that makes an exercise kind of a, a good exercise for you? And maybe like give an example. Sure. And maybe just talking about yourself personally would be absolutely yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So th that exercise I was talking about before that I did for years just because everyone else was doing was the back squat. So um, back in like 2011, 2012, 2013, I was doing low bar back squats and my best back squat ever low bar was like 315 for 10, which to me isn't impressive at all. But I would only grow in my glutes and like the proximal portion of my quad, right? Like my upper thigh. I never really got much growth or soreness like near my teardrop and that distal portion of the quad, but I still buried it for a couple of years and my low back was always killing me and stuff like that, but I just did it to do it. And then I thought I made a better decision by switching over to high bar, even though I'm not, I'm actually worse at high bar from a strength perspective, but I was just like, all right, I'm just going to smash my quads, get more knee flexion, get a little bit more anterior tibial translation. So more, more tension on the quads and that's going to help my teardrop. But I just suck at squats. So I never really got good at them. And, you know, over the, over my contest prep, I actually completely pulled out barbell squatting as a whole and all i did was um, machine squats hack squats leg press bulgarian split squats and i actually saw improvements in my quadriceps while in a calorie deficit and like that was like you know six seven years into my training career so um, i think it's really important that we don't just smash one exercise because everyone else is even though it might not be um, giving you the result you're looking for and can actually be hurting uh, your overall progress and the amount of work and force you can produce on all of your other exercises. Cause by the time you're done with that, you can't really give all those other exercises a really good effort. Yeah. I think it's at least, I think I was the same at that period of time around that period of time, there was a big influx of powerlifting coming into bodybuilding and it was kind of doing almost a hybrid. So I remember low bar squatting as well. And very similarly had the same sort of issues of it just beating the crap out of me. Fortunately, yeah. I am made for high bar squats. So I actually get a lot out of a high bar squat, but not everyone does. And I think the key thing you're talking about there is just actually we, sometimes as lifters, we forget to think about our training and what we're getting out of it. So I think that's super important. And when you're kind of talking to clients, what sort of things are you asking them? Maybe they're a new client and you've set them up, um, sort of things you're assessing to make out if it's a good exercise for them or not. 
Sure. No, going, going on what you just said, sometimes we forget to think or sometimes we actually think too much and we just stop feeling, right? So that's where like the whole art of bodybuilding is kind of lost where if you feel something giving you a really good stimulus, it most likely is, right? Um, and if you feel like something isn't, but you're doing it anyway, that time is not being used efficiently and effectively, right? Um, when new clients come to me, something that I love to do is ask them to list five exercises that they feel the most per muscle group. So I can consider utilizing those while creating their program. Um, you know, I don't care if, if the squat is a great exercise, a, a barbell back squat, if a client doesn't like them, isn't good at them, or simply just gets a lot of low back issues and not a lot of quad stimulus, then I will switch them over to something else, you know. Could be like a Bul Bulgarian split squat um, or some sort of squat variation, but it does not have to be that barbell back squat. So yeah, getting a list of exercise that the clients really get a good feeling and that they have a good mind-muscle connection there, that's where I like to start. And then the exercises that I might be biased towards that I think are great exercises, if they don't feel it, then we start talking about, okay, here are some external cues. These are some things I want you to think about so you can actually engage the target muscle a bit better. Yeah, I think that's really important is also, I think on some movements, at least when I initially started squatting, it was very much a dive bomb, kind of just plummet into the hole, use as much weight as possible. And as yeah. I've progressed with it, I'm like, actually being stronger beats me up more, using more weight beats me up more, and I don't get as much out of the actual quad. So uh, like you were alluding to there, like execution, external cues can make a huge difference. You can make maybe a movement that you feel like was no good for you. And then you watch their video and you're like, well, you're just not performing it like in the way that we really want it to be performed. So is there anything you found? I don't know if it could be like external cues, um, bands or kind of manipulating things that have kind of really changed the game for some exercises. Um, for, for pulling exercises, I will say pausing at the, at that peak contraction is huge for a lot of people. A lot of people struggle, struggle to feel their back. So um, what pausing does is a few things, right? It, it's actually making you stop and, and fully contract in that fully shortened position of that exercise. And then also by pausing, it gives you a better chance to control that eccentric with, with more control. Whereas if you don't pause and you just kind of just move through that range, your ability to actually control the eccentric is probably going to be hindered. Um, and yeah, kind of like you mentioned back in the day, you might've been just kind of dive bobbing when you're, when you're squatting rather than controlling that eccentric. I think that really helps people start connecting with their musculature. Awesome. And you yeah. talked about some of your kind of favorite movements for hypertrophy. I'd be interested to hear maybe some of those for some of the big muscle groups. Sure. Um, I mean, talking about the kind of like the big three going over that again, I personally don't barbell flat bench anymore. Um, I do barbell incline or dumbbell incline or machine incline, as well as a lot of decline presses. And then for any sort of, let me, let me kind of back it up. So, uh, let's talk about the pecs really quick, right? Yeah. The pecs primary function is going to be horizontal adduction, right? They also assist the clavicular head does a lot of shoulder flexion and it also does pure adduction. So bring your arm straight down to your side. So if you look at like the barbell bench press, the flat, you're basically performing horizontal adduction at your glenohumeral joint, right? 
Whereas when you're doing a incline press, besides your trunk angle being different, you're kind of moving through flexion and horizontal adduction simultaneously, where that flat bench is really just more pure uh, horizontal adduction. And then if you look at a decline press, you're actually moving through basically pure adduction, not really much horizontal, and you're not getting any shoulder flexion. So if you do an incline press, you're definitely going to hit your clavicular head more so than the flat. But when you do your flat, you're going to get both the sternal head and the clavicular head. And then when you do a decline press, you're literally getting just the sternal head and that clavicular head is basically completely thrown out of it. That's what I've seen from EMG data. And that's what I've seen from messing around in the lab as well. So my thought process is a lot of natural bodybuilders lack that clavicular head thickness. So focus on an incline press. If you want to obviously tax the middle of your pec, which you absolutely should, you should train some sort of horizontal adduction. I love a pec deck fly where you have equal tension throughout the entire thing. And then it's super hard when it's fully shortened. So I absolutely love that. And then a lot of people, if you look at like classic bodybuilders, the decline bench press was an absolute staple. And I feel like now it's like a missing, a missing exercise in, in today's bodybuilders, especially on the, the natural side. So I love decline presses, whether it's decline barbell or a machine decline. And again, you're training all functions of the pec. You know, not all presses are created equal the same way not all pulls are created equal. And if you're literally moving your glenohumeral joint through a different action, you're training different fibers. You're going to hit those, those lateral fibers of the sternal pec more and those costal fibers a bit more. So again, um, maybe people are forgetting to think or they're forgetting to feel, but there's so many components that, that kind of go into that. And that gets into the whole, like you said, variation aspect, like hitting, not that you need to train, I don't know, every angle during a pressing session, but through yeah. your mesocycles that you're programming lifts, you don't have to just, yeah, barbell bench press. You can include some incline, vary the grip width, vary the angles. Um, and yeah. then obviously yeah, having the, the fly movement in there as well, it's pretty important. So no, I think, yeah, people aren't, and it's not like it's super complicated things. It's just thinking about how can I, what are the actions of this muscle? What exercises work for me that are good for doing that? So um, I think it's, yeah, for the most part, it's not something you need to overthink, but having some thinking about is a good idea. Yeah. And you can do it with varying your pressing or you can do it with varying your fly movements, right? Like if you do a low to high cable fly, you're training that clavicular head a lot because you're getting that shoulder flexion. If you go straight across and do pure adduction, you're going to hit that, that middle pack, that sternal head great. And then if you do high to low flies, you're basically moving through pure shoulder adduction. You're going to stretch that, those lateral fibers and you're going to, you're training pure adduction. So it's similar to a decline. Um, so there's so many ways to go about it. And it's literally like that with every muscle group. You know, sometimes I see people, let's just take back, for example, they might do pronated pull-ups and then they do pronated lat pull-downs in the same session. And I'm like, you basically just did the same exercise. One's open chain, one's closed chain, but you're, you're training the muscular system in a very similar way where if you are going to do two vertical pulls, you might as well do like one that's moving through adduction and then one that's moving through extension. So like move to a neutral grip or something like that. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your volume and you're not just, again, wasting, wasting your time or being inefficient with your effort. Yeah. Yeah. Hitting the same area over and over again, probably not the way to go. Just like keeping to the same exercise, you might as well vary the exercise. So it's hitting the muscle in a different way effectively. So no, I really like that. And, um, something 
I, I don't know if maybe we could, because I think this would be useful for the listeners. If you have any exercises, what you think are maybe just completely overrated for hypertrophy that you've come across that maybe they're ones, maybe not completely overrated, but people, people rely on them too much for hypertrophy, maybe that you've come across that as a standard, they just tend to not be the best. And then maybe kind of some of your ones that you think are maybe underrated. So you already had the, the decline press. Sure. Um, overrated exercise. It will honestly be hard for me to say. I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to hurt anyone's I feelings. Wanna <laughs> I don't want to hate on one exercise. Um, but I think it depends like per person, right? Based on the individual. So some people, maybe deadlifts just really aren't a good exercise for them. Uh, maybe some people, barbell back squats aren't their best movement. But I think it's going to really vary uh, based on the individual. So uh, I don't, I don't want to single one exercise out. In terms of next moving on, I think something would be really interesting to talk about is exercise sequencing. So what order do we perform an exercise? Again, I think it's something that when we're building a program, a lot of people don't think about what they put first. Maybe it's just what they enjoy most, or maybe they do think enough about, okay, maybe if I want to prioritize my delts, I do lateral raises first or something, but I'd be really interested to hear kind of your, how you break that down for when you're kind of creating a program. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, going back to kind of enhancing people's mind muscle connection or, or giving them a better opportunity to connect typically exercises that overload that muscle and they're fully shortened position are going to do a really good job at, at giving you that internal stimulus. We're like, okay, it's fully contracted. It's fully shortened. You're having that full overlap of the actin and myosin and there you have that neurological connection where like, okay, this is what I need to feel. This is the muscle I'm targeting. So I like, um, whether you want to call it a primer or not, that's fine. Like sometimes these exercises are performed submaximally in regards to intensity. So then I think it's more appropriate to call it a primer. And then sometimes these exercises, I actually perform them first and I perform like one top set where I'm going all out. But you know, an example of that again would be like that pec deck fly for your chest. Um, it could be leg extensions for your quad where you're fully, fully overloaded in that shortened position. Um, I think a lot of people struggle feeling their lats. So there's a couple of different ways that I like getting the lat fully shortened. Um, I either do low cable rows unilaterally with one arm where I'm like laterally flexing my spine really driving my scapula down, depressing it. And a good cue that I like is I like to picture myself scraping my elbow across the floor as I pull back to really keep that downward intention. And then I could basically feel like my lat like cramp up. So that usually helps people engage with their lat or those popular like lat pull-ins unilaterally. Um, that's just performing pure adduction. Again, a little bit of flexion at the trunk driving down and really pulling with the elbow. Um, so doing exercises that get the muscle fully shortened first. Again, you can do this at, you know, lower effort and lower intensities just to maybe get some blood in there and create that neurological connection. Or you can do it as like your first exercise where, all right, I'm, I'm going to go balls to the wall in one set, whatever it may be, and then get into the rest of your stuff. So I think that's really important. Um, Something I've seen as of late, uh, this is just a hypothesis of mine too, but I personally think doing exercises that overload the muscle in their lengthened position first 
probably going to have some sort of negative outcome throughout the rest of the session in regards to your ability to produce force. And this is just a hypothesis. It hasn't been studied yet. Something that I actually want to create a study design around. But um, for example, let's just say you do RDLs first, right? You're overloading your hamstrings, creating a lot of muscle damage because it's an eccentric focused exercise. My hypothesis is that that's going to inhibit your ability to produce force on your other movements throughout the rest of the exercise. Um, whereas like, I've even seen somebody do um, dumbbell lat pullovers as exercise one. And I would love to do like an isolation exercise first, but that would be the last isolation exercise I did first because again, it can create a lot of muscle damage. You're overloading that lengthened position. And I think that's going to decrease your lats ability to produce force when you're doing your vertical pulls or your horizontal pulls. So I think sequencing your exercises in a smart manner is pretty important. Um, Obviously, if you're like chasing the logbook and you're like, I want to get way stronger at RDL, so I'm going to do them first, you are going to produce more volume, but is that actually giving you a better growth stimulus when you take the entire exercise, uh, sorry, the entire training session into account or the entire mezzo into account, you know? Very interesting. And actually, I don't know if that sounds similar to kind of a lot of the advanced, more advanced bodybuilders, you see them kind of using pre-fatiguing uh, exercises. So like you said, maybe doing an isolation like the cable fly and then doing their bench press or like doing the leg curls and then going to an RDL. And sure. I guess what that ends up for them doing is by well, pre-fatiguing that muscle, hopefully it then has to work even harder in that set, but is pre-fatigued so they can't use as much weight. So the systemic fatigue that you produce from the exercises less because you're using less weight. So then that might allow them to perform better. And I guess that might link into your hypothesis of actually, you can't actually perform as well either with the kind of force production due to being kind of already fatigued in that stretched position. So I, it's, yeah. this is when I guess you see kind of the bro science coming out and then it gets proven by science and smart people yeah. like yourself have these hypotheses that may end up proving things. And is it, is that something those techniques with like, I guess the primer you could use with anyone, but the kind of, when you go all out and maybe it is like a pre-fatigue, is that something you would use with some populations and not others? Or um, yeah, if, if would it be something you'd use with everyone? Yeah, um, I like using that. Honestly, I like experimenting with that for weak body parts. Uh, not, like, not like weak in terms of their ability to produce force and strength, but I'm saying weak in terms of like development for a bodybuilder. Um, so for example, let's just say somebody has done squats, leg press, or some sort of major compound for their legs forever, like since the beginning of their training history, because that's what most people do. And they still have bad legs. I will absolutely program leg extensions first, and then let's run with it. Let's do this for six, eight, 12 weeks, and let's see how your quads look afterwards. Um, so they might be doing less load on their leg press or their squat or their Bulgarian split squat, whatever compound it may be. But by doing that leg extension first, they might see better results for that one individual. Now, does everyone have to do it that way? No. Um, but I think it's a great option. And again, these are just like tools in the toolbox, man. Just, just things that people can consider utilizing. You don't have to use it, but it's definitely an option to experiment with. I wonder if there's a bit of, um, 
like correlation causation with the fact that advanced bodybuilders end up using it because they're so much struggling to grow that they finally accept I'll pre-fatigue myself. I'll let my ego get hurt for this next movement. Whereas before that, we're so, for myself, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I'm just stubborn. I want to be squatting more weight and I don't want to have to reduce the weight. I wonder if there's a bit of like, you just get so much like, yeah, I'm anything that will grow me. I'll just do it. I don't care if I end up looking a bit weaker on my uh, other compound lifts. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. One of my clients, uh, Andrew Roback, before we started working together, um, he took a completely different approach to his improvement season. And, uh, he basically stopped the power building. Yeah. He, you know, put a lot less attention on the big three. And then he told me he was running a lot of John Meadows programs during his improvement season. And we stepped on stage this year, um, eight to 10 pounds heavier than his previous wow. stage. And, and he's an advanced trainee, you know, he's been doing this for many, many years. So to see that much stage weight added later in his career, I think is, um, a very impressive, but also a testament to specific bodybuilding training being way different than power building or powerlifting. And if you want to be the best bodybuilder you can be, train like a bodybuilder. If you want to be a good hybrid athlete, train like a hybrid athlete. If you want to be a powerlifter, train like a powerlifter. But um, I don't think you can be the best at both. You know, you you kind of if you. If you want to be as strong as possible, you need to train that way. If you want to be as aesthetic and complete as a bodybuilder as possible, you need to train that way as well. I guess it's that the law of specificity or the principle rather, not law, but I absolutely. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. So something, I guess that kind of, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about kind of some of the big tenants of training like a bodybuilder. Um, otherwise we can move on to the next kind of question I had for you. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say about exercise, um, sequence is again, you know, if you do something like a primer something that starts fully short and cool, then I usually move to like a very heavy compound. Um, and then towards the end of the session, I will do stuff that is going to overload the length and position typically speaking. So if we were using chest, you know, maybe pec deck flies to start, then maybe an incline press and a decline press, and then maybe some sort of dumbbell fly where I'm getting a huge stretch um, and overloading that length and position, just for example purposes. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so my next question for you, Chris, is to talk about, I guess, some of your personal life in a sense, but we're going to translate this into uh, your own little experiment for resensitization potentially where I guess, I don't know if you actually detrained, but you ended up really dramatically reducing your training volume and frequency for about eight weeks and you're kind of on the, you're coming out of that now. So I love to hear, I guess maybe you should tell the listeners if you're open to it, why that happened oh, yeah. and um, where you are now in terms of, are you back to baseline already? Did you maintain all your muscle? And also how has it felt coming back into things? Have you found, I don't know, like you felt like you got a resensitization effect um, where kind of, I don't know, pumps easier to get. Like yeah. my muscle connection felt easier. Did you need less volume to get a great, like the usual response that you might've got from your training? Sure. So yeah, I took, uh, I took some time completely away from the gym and then I took a lot of time where I was training with a lot less frequency and a lot less volume. So, um, you know, a lot of it's like just personal life, being busy with work projects, um, traveling, just focusing on business rather than my, myself. Um, this past year I was really focused on my clients out of a lot of people stepping on stage and, you know, I like to give them my all rather than 
myself, my own, so to speak. Um, and then I also was not on point with my nutrition by any means. So I lost 17 pounds. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was almost a nightmare, right? For a physique athlete. I lost 17 pounds and like literally like my body fat percent basically stayed the same. So I have so much DEXA data that I, I lost like primarily lean body mass. And, um, again, is that true muscle tissue? It's hard to say. There's a lot of it glycogen. I just think some of it's glycogen at this point because I've been back to training and I, I'm still like, so instead of being 17 pounds down, I'm like 13 pounds down. So I'm, I'm on the way back up, but, um, yeah, man, I, I completely changed my split. And when I came back, I did not just go back to my previous training volumes, previous training intensities. I was intentionally training three days per week instead of uh, five. So when I came back to training, I ended up doing one full body, one upper, one lower. So I was still touching everything twice a week, but with very low volume compared to what I'm used to. Um, and it was interesting for the first like four weeks, things felt pretty foreign. Like it took me a minute to like get into the groove. Um, and I was getting super sore from very low volume. And I was like, wow, I am very detrained. Um, but slowly but surely things came back up. And interestingly, my strength is pretty darn good right now. Um, but my size still isn't there. So a lot of that has to come down to just nutrition and, and not pushing the food nearly as high as I need to. Um, but in regards to the resensitization, it'll be really interesting to see because I was stuck at like 175, 177 for quite a while. And for me to get over that weight, which I've done, I got as high as 185, 186. I don't feel like I gained any muscle going from 177 to 185, right? I felt like at that point, probably insulin sensitivity wasn't good, whatever it may be. I feel like I just gained a lot of fat mass. Um, even if my strength performance went up, I, I didn't really see like quality tissue being gained. So I'm curious, I know I'm going to get back to like 175, 177, relatively easy. Um, and then from there, we're going to be able to tell like, can I get past that previous plateau, so to speak, a bit better? I'm not sure. I, I guess we're going to have to wait and see, but, um, I'm excited. I'm still excited. Cool. You know, yeah. I bet you're, you can't wait to get all the weight back on. You just don't want to rush it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I got a, I got a, a leg session planned for about an hour and a half, two hours from now. So I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess in that regard, I don't know if, um, previous to this, you periodize your volumes to a large degree at all for like a, a bodybuilder kind of in the off season is it something you used much where you would have higher and lower volumes. Yeah. Um, especially depending on their, what, what body parts we're trying to really bring up or whatever it may be, what are their strengths or their weaknesses? Um, so it again, depends client to client, um, during contest prep, what tends to happen is that total volume might go down a little bit, but I actually like increasing frequency in some sort of way. Um, so I'll try to just give a, a quick, a quick uh, example of that. Let's just say someone is doing legs twice per week. Um, and let's just say their, their quads and their hamstrings really aren't a strength. 
during a contest prep, I might have them touch like BFR leg extensions and BFR hamstring curls on their upper day or a push day or a pull day just to get some sort of growth stimulus without actually creating muscle damage. Um, because obviously they're not going to be able to recover. I don't want them to not be ready for their next actual leg session, but I do want to give them some sort of growth stimulus. Or if this is someone, let's say someone's chest or back is bad, I might have them do like actually three sets of calisthenics of like push-ups and like TRX inverted rows. Let's say their back was a weak point. Um, just to get some sort of stimulus to that muscle um, without doing something that's going to like make them sore and, and uh, decrease their ability to perform their next session. Um, so yeah, volume might go down a little bit during a contest prep. Um, but then I might, depending on the athlete, have like a, a little, a little bit more frequency kind of sprinkled in. Cool. And yeah, then, and then, Oh, sorry. You're going to no, go into off season. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming you're going to ask that. So, and then in regards to off season, when volumes get a bit higher, um, they're, their time to recover can actually take a bit longer from session to session. So frequency can come down, uh, especially for their stronger body parts. So if somebody has amazing legs, if they were doing it twice per week during their contest prep, they actually might just hit legs once per week during their off season. If it's like really a strength like that. Um, so again, from individual to individual, it can vary, but um, I'm not really obsessed with saying like you need to hit everything twice a week or whatever it may be, you know, one muscle group might get hit once per week. And then another muscle group, let's say lateral delts, I might touch them three times per week, depending yeah. on the athlete. So yeah, it kind of just varies. Cool. And then I guess, um, do you, are you kind of using deloads or is deloads something you use within your programs and how do you kind of operate those and are they different off season to contest prep? Yeah, man. Um, with the clients I work with, it's, it's auto-regulated based on their feedback. Um, I'm personally not a huge fan of like pre-planning it, uh, even though it definitely can work. I've seen it work. I know it works, but um, I like to just kind of take everything into consideration, life stress, sleep, um, work demands, whatever it may be, and then kind of deload based off of that. Um, me personally, if I'm super beat up, I might go into the gym and do a sub-maximal session, lower volume, lower intensity to deload. Or I might just take the additional rest day, you know, two days, an additional two days off back to back or three days off back to back, and then just get back into the swing of things. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I guess we've talked quite a lot about your clients within this and coaching. And obviously that's a massive part of your life and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So something I thought was really inspirational kind of looking over, especially over the years, how you've progressed as a coach and this year how many clients you had even taken to kind of WMBF Worlds, which for those unaware is one of the biggest kind of natural organizations and the finals there. So have that many clients there is really, really cool. So first of all, congrats. And then secondly, so much, uh, secondly, uh, kind of what, do you have any key attributes for your successful clients? Is there anything you see the more successful clients doing that maybe your lesser successful ones are, aren't doing? Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, I really appreciate that, man. This, this entire journey has been a blessing, something I'm sincerely grateful for. Um, my first season like coaching was back in 2015. And that year I only had two athletes step on stage. I coached both of them completely for free. I was still a senior in my undergraduate and it was just a, a true passion of mine. You know, people started reaching out to me 
for coaching back in 2013 after my second competitive season and to have it grow so organically. Um, it just really means a lot to me. And I'm like the last person you should ask for like business advice. Cause I'm not a business guy. I'm just like, do good work, get results, treat people the way they should be treated and, and good shit would happen. Um, so I'm very grateful to see the team grow and, and stuff like that, you know, um, starting with two people in 2015. And then in 2018, I had a, a solid team at Worlds. And then this year, even more competitors that I'm super proud of at Worlds. So just to see that growth, I appreciate you just kind of acknowledging that, man. Um, in regards to what separates the athletes, to be totally honest with you, some people just get shit done and make zero fucking excuses. And some people are kind of tiptoeing, not fully committed, not just not doing it, man. Um, I've seen some of the most genetically blessed people be that way where they're just like kind of tiptoeing and not executing and they still get away with it. And then I've seen it on the other side of the, the table where you don't have the genetics and you're tiptoeing, but you're not going to bring anything special to the stage. So, you know, more times than not, it's just people with like average genetics busting their fucking ass and just getting it done every day, every week, whether it's prep or off season, whether they have a 60 hour work week and three kids to take care of, they just do it, man. So um, hats off to them. Like I think some coaches get, I don't want to say they get too much credit. I think some, some coaches look for way too much credit. They, they just like really put it out there and, and they think that like they're doing the work where I'll be the first one to say they're busting their ass daily. They're starving when they need to starve. They're training their ass off. I'm just trying to give them the pat on the back, give them the right direction, support them, man. Cause I, I love it. I love seeing people. I call it like walking through that door where it's just like, I accept I'm going to go through that door where I just need to do whatever I have to do to make it happen. I really like that. And I think uh, I've had a similar experience as well, where I've kind of seen kind of had clients with major potential and they even know it themselves where they haven't given it their all and they've held back for whatever reason it is. Maybe they, they just don't want to take it quite there. And then, yeah, it's the ones who just fall in love with the whole process and are just committed to it no matter what. And it does take that kind of mental person to really get to the gnarly levels that you need to get to for like getting to a, a natural bodybuilding world final. You have to be very, you can't tiptoe and just make your way there out of luck. Even genetics, I don't think are going to take you that far. So no, I like, I really like that honest, just brutal answer because, and like you said as well, it, it does come down to the client. Even, however good your coaching is, you may be the best coach. If they aren't complying, adhering, it always comes down to them. So I think that sure. was a great answer. Thanks, man. And, and something else I like to add is like someone who loves the science, someone who loves the sport and someone who's doing what we're doing, talking about volume and exercise selection and mind muscle connection and all that stuff. It's important. It's super important, but it's not going to replace consistency and hard work. It just won't. There's so many people that are training suboptimally that know nothing about the things that we communicate about, or they don't even care, but they love training and they train hard and, and they, they freaking look good, you know? Um, and that comes down to even like dieting strategies, right? Like some people, you know, don't get me wrong. I, 
I definitely do not support poor coaching methods where it's like, all right, I'm just going to starve these clients and like whatever, use diuretics or do something silly. But something that I do give credit to are the clients that just fucking do it, right? If they're eating tilapia and, and asparagus five times a day, yeah, it might suck for them. But if, if they step on stage looking better than you, like fitting in your pop tart, then like who's winning at the end of the day, you know? So, um, I really respect the athletes. I hope all the coaches take a more evidence-based approach for sure, but there's just something, something to be said about just getting it done. Actually on that kind of note, is there anything you found as a coach that has helped that you use with those clients? And it might just be giving them a talking to, I don't, uh, that allows them to take it to that level. I don't know. It could be things like diet breaks. If that having that break helps or refeeds, if those you found implementing them more or less helps, is there anything that you've found when you're instructing the client that just allows them, if they maybe were teetering between kind of stepped, stepped, like not quite doing it and then actually just becoming a terminator, is there anything sure. you've been able to kind of get that out of them? Yeah. Um, to be quite honest with you, there's usually like one specific conversation that sticks. Um, and it, it comes down to, so every client's different. And this is what I love about coaching. Some clients come to me, their guard is down from day one. They're telling me their life story. They're super transparent and honest with me. They're giving me a lot of feedback and, and they're just like letting me in like fully. Right. And I, I appreciate that. And I love that. It gives me an opportunity to do a better job with them. Um, whereas some clients come to you and like, they're like, this is what I did this week. These are my macros. This is my training. And there's no personal, yeah. there's no personal um, bond really being created. Um, what I've seen with a lot of my clients is I, depending on what, what time this happens, there's usually a specific conversation. It could be over the phone. It could be a video chat can sometimes even be via email where I might start prying more personal questions out of them. They let their guard down. And then I just like kind of keep it a hundred percent with them and, and tell them like, like, listen, I fully believe in you. You have an opportunity to do something amazing right now. Um, whatever it may be a lot of, a lot of times it's people lacking confidence. Um, this, you know, a lot of self doubt, um, and then sometimes fearing, like it's almost like they fear how good they could be if they do take it there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had conversations with people where clicks they're in and they go there. And I've also had tens of conversations with some athletes and it, it seems like it's going to click and like everything's going well, but it, they never go there. So. Um, I think that open communication, being transparent, letting them know that like, you truly want to see them succeed and you believe in them. Man, sometimes people don't believe in themselves. I think that's what it is. So if they don't believe in themselves and then there's a conversation where they really sense that you truly believe in them, like, oh, wow, like maybe I can do this. And they start going there. So uh, that's kind of a tangent, but yeah. No, I, I love it because this is what coaching is. Um, sure. giving the, the macros, the numbers, the figures, the programming, it, if you can't actually talk to someone like they're a human, you're never going to get what you need out of them. So I like the kind of, yeah, the differences between people. It's completely true. So I've had very similar experiences there. Some people are, uh, you get them 
clients saying this might be TMI and I'm always like, no, not nothing. nothing. There's no, never TMI. Uh, More information is always better. So I love that. And uh, something we're kind of talked about, yeah, where some people like self-sabotage or say you get a client to really take it there and um, they go to stage and they don't get the result they want. Have you ever had clients that are just, it ruins them. They're just completely upset, distraught because maybe they didn't place or um, what, kind of how do you get them back from that hole? Because I can imagine people do get there where they're super confident, they're super happy, they in the best shape of their life, they compete, don't place, and then it, really bad things I imagine could happen from that point. Sure. Um, I will say things have changed over the years because my personal um, perspective and outlook has changed. Like, it's funny, like the name of my, the name of the coaching brand is Competitive Breed, right? Um, And when I was younger, I was very competitive in regards to like competing against others and like walking away with first. Um, I remember back in 2013 when I, I won my weight class and I lost the overall and I missed my pro card. I got all emotional backstage and like I put so much value on that extrinsic outcome, right? Um, And then things have really shifted over the years. In 2017, I came up short two times in second place and I took it way better because I was like, especially one of them, like that person deserved to win. It's that simple. Move on, right? Um, So even though like bodybuilding is considered uh, subjective in so many ways where it's, you know, if you have two tens, it's like, who do you pick? Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes there's a first place and there's a second place and you fucking move on. So um, my expectations have changed where it's like the way I communicate with the client is we're going to do everything in our power to bring your absolute best and where the chips fall, that's where they fall. That's what it is, you know? Um, So I think my expectations have changed and that has led to my client's expectations changing as well. I have a lot of people come to me like, I want to win this show. And I I love that. Um, And I don't want to take that, that perspective and confidence away from them, but I do want to prepare them that that might not be the reality, but we're still going to do our best. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you described there in terms of already having that chat with them of just everyone knows that, it depends who turns up on the day. Like when we think about it rationally, it it always comes down to that. So I think just making sure before they're kind of leading into the show that you've had that chat with them, they kind of understand that they've enjoyed the process. You remind them of everything they've got out of the process. Like you, you've already won. That's why I always try and kind of get out of clients. Like before you've stepped on stage, hopefully they're in the best shape of their life now and they've, they've already won. So uh, yeah, I really like that perspective. Yeah, man, if they went there and they, they really, you know, emptied the tank, so to speak, there's nothing to, to hold your head down about, you know? So, um, yeah, we're on the same page. Awesome. And finally, um, something exciting that you're working on. Cause like I said, uh, Chris is a researcher and he's always working on different projects. I was just talking off air with him, how crazy busy he is with things. So, uh, something I know uh, the audience is going to be excited about and, uh, Terrence, Ruffin has come on um, mm. the podcast before. Uh, you're working with him doing a bodybuilding case study, which sounds super exciting. I'd love to hear kind of, first of all, maybe why Terrence, why not kind of someone else? Um, and then kind of what outcomes you're looking for or and what you maybe predict. Sure. Um, so this is going to be individual case studies 
Um, but I, the long-term goal is to make this a case series. So this might be like a five-year project or something wow. like that where I'm taking um, competitors in the Tampa Bay area, people that can come into the lab, um, collecting data on them, and then comparing their preps. So ideally, I, I'm looking for like the top natural bodybuilders and the top enhanced bodybuilders. Um, so obviously you have to be like semi-local so you can actually come into the lab and I can collect data on you. But yeah, we looked at things like, um, muscle thickness. So a lot of case studies, they, they just look at total lean body mass. They might use something like a DEXA scan or a bod pod or whatever it may be. And oftentimes during a contest prep, you see lean body mass going down. Um, but there are so many more components to lean body mass than just muscle. So we're utilizing the ultrasounds to measure muscle thickness directly. Um, this is something I did back in my 2017 prep. I just, there were some issues with the case study that I don't feel like I should actually publish it. I have all the data myself. Um, but like just, just to go back, for example, during my contest prep, I lost thickness on my clavicular head and my sternal head of my pec but my quads actually either stayed the same depending on the region or grew. So going back to like, yeah. I actually made progress. Like it was, it was real. Like I was able to like objectively quantify that, but my lean body mass as a whole on a DEXA scan really went down. So I was able to tell like, okay, I made, I maintained my bicep thickness. I lost thickness in my pec, but I actually grew on my quads in some areas. So um, just getting a little bit more specific, looking at hormones and stuff like that. Um, looking at sleep quality, looking at psychological mood state and stuff like that. So long story short, this is going to be a long, a long project where we want to make it into a case series and just kind of looking at the best people in the Tampa area. Um, yeah. And then in regards to other research projects, I'm super fortunate. I have a great crew that I work with a great mentor. Um, my mentor is Eduardo de Souza. He's from Brazil. He's been teaching at university of Tampa for quite a while. And we basically collaborate on a lot of things. So, um, a lot coming out, um, a lot of cool studies coming out too. We have a study coming out. Um, the PI is my friend, Jeremy Pearson. It's on repetition tempo. So um, I'll just briefly give you a quick rundown. It was a within study design where subjects came into the lab. One leg, they did leg extensions with a one-to-one -one, um, ratio, concentric, eccentric. And the other leg did a one-second concentric and a three-second eccentric. And the results are going are very interesting. I already know the results, but I, I won't kind of leave it yet. So stay tuned for that. Um, we have another study that just wrapped up on intraset stretching. Um, that's by my buddy Tanuj. He's the PI on there. So we're looking at intraset stretching on chest thickness, chest growth. And we also have a volume study that has been done for a while. And it should be published either this month or in January in the JSCR. Um, so we looked at 12 sets per week, 18 sets per week and 24 sets per week. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I just wrote a research review with my buddy, Dr. Escalante in California, actually on fasted cardio versus fed cardio. And I have a lot of stuff in the works, man. Um, working on another paper on body recomp with some really great people in the industry. So I'm just pumped for everything to come. A lot of things are coming at once too. That's great. Uh, yeah. Can you say, I guess you can't give any details about any of those, but does, did any of them shock you or no, I, kind of I, surprise I kind of you? Could. I definitely could. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the rep tempo one's very cool, man. So 
Um, long story short is the leg that was performing the three second eccentrics actually did see more hypertrophy in the distal quad. So utilizing the ultrasound, there was more growth in the distal quad. And another very cool thing about that is that volume was matched. Mm. So as you would expect, um, this was within subject design too, which I love. So you can't say, Oh, it's a genetic difference. Yeah. It's the same, the same person. I love the single leg stuff. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, the, the leg that was doing one and one, and they obviously performed more reps before going, before reaching failure than the one doing the three second eccentric. So what we did was like rest pause to make sure that actual volume load was matched. Okay. So I love the study design. Um, and I'm excited for that to come out in 2020. Awesome. So everyone's yeah. now going to really slow down everything they're doing. <laughs> Control your eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Chris, I want to say a massive thank you for you to come on and spare the time. I'm sure the audience is going to love this and I'm sure this won't be the last time you're on the show. Hopefully, uh, if people want to learn more from you, learn about your coaching, learn more about kind of the stuff you put out, where should they head? For sure. Um, for those interested in coaching, definitely check out competitivebreed.com. And then my educational platform is a new brand I just launched. It's schoolofgains.com and gains is with a Z. It's more anabolic that way. Um, <laughs> so on School of Gains is where you'll find training programs that I sell, eBooks that I sell, um, a lot of free articles, podcasts like this, um, and all of the research that I'm doing that's previously been published and that's in the works is kind of like leaked on there. Um, just so people have an idea of what's in the works. Um, and I also want to mention, uh, earlier this year, me and my man, Jeff Nipper just came out with that body recomposition ebook. So you can definitely check that out on schoolofgains.com. Perfect. Thank you very much, Chris. Make sure that's all linked below. So you guys can go and kind of learn a load more and become a, 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 a scholar of the gains, no, a, a student of the gains, <laughs> which I guess gains. they kind of are already. So yeah. yeah, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you soon. Thanks so much, Steve.